Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, for this day. We, <clears throat> we give you thanks uh, for all that you're doing in our midst. Uh, Lord, we, we pray for the, the moms that are present that have young ones in the house presently. I ask that you would um, give them strength, give them endurance, give them uh, vision to see uh, beyond the, the day-to-day sufferings and pains that a mother goes through. Lord, we pray that you would give them perseverance and loving on and caring for their children. Uh, we, we thank you for them. We thank you for those uh, mothers that we have, whether biological or people who have uh, poured into our lives as mothers, as I, I have a handful of those ladies in my life, and so I give you thanks for them. Um, Father, we, um, we turn our attention now to the the gospel of Mark and the calling of Matthew and, and uh, just the story surrounding his calling. Father, we ask that you would uh, guide our time now, help us to understand the significance of the text. Lord, I ask that you'd help my voice and lungs to hold up. Um, Father, may our hearts be open to hear the things that you have to say. Father, I pray that you would help us to see Christ as one who loves us, who uh, came uh, to this earth, uh, to live his life in a way that we could see um, the Father in heaven. And so, Lord, we ask um, that you would challenge us today, that you would encourage us today, um, that you would help us along in our journey with you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them, As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table of his house, in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with him, with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Father, we do thank you and praise you again for Jesus, we thank you for his life, his example, uh, his mission that he came uh, f- for us. Each of us are desperately in need of saving. And so, Father, I ask that this day you would help us to have greater insight on how sinful we really are and how great our need truly is. Um, Father, we pray that you would help us to appreciate Christ for who he is and what he has done for us. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So we entered into this passage last week, and I'm going to kind of loop back around to to refresh our our minds about uh, where we are, who Matthew is, or who who Levi is, um, how he would have been uh, received in his community. So we read as he passed by, verse 14, so Jesus is passing by He's ministering on the the coast of the Sea of Galilee. 
Um, he's making his way through Capernaum, the town. If The map behind me, you can kind of see it in the top left corner. Um, and we see that Jesus sees Levi, um, or the man Matthew that we know from the Gospel of Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth. And so last week I shared about sort of, not briefly, but in more detail, about their tax system. They had two basic uh, taxes that they were collected. There was the, the, the land and poll tax uh, that the Roman authorities would have um, overseen directly and, and collected themselves. And then there was the other taxes uh, that were sort of, uh, this isn't like the IRS. This is, we have to think more in terms of um, like immigration and customs as you're passing from one border to the next. They inventory what you have, what they're going to tax from it. And it was done sort of over each jurisdictional region, sort of like townships. And so Capernaum was a strategic town because as you can see the line on the map here, um, it, it, it creates a, a border between two jurisdictions. Um, Herod the Great had left his, his sort of empire to the, the four sons in particular. And on the east side of the Jordan, it was Herod Philip who owned that area, and on the left, it was Herod Antipas. And so um, if you crossed through this region, you had to pay taxes on your goods. Um, and there was a main road. It was, there was, it was like if you owned the, the roads out of Valley Center, um, if you had Lilac, Colgrade, I don't know, Colgrade, Valley Center Road, and then I guess if you were to go through the reservation that way, and you said, anybody in or out of Valley Center, every time you come in, hey, you went to Costco over lunch. <laughs> How much did you spend? 20 bucks. You can't spend less than $100 at Costco. Let's, let's go through your trunk and see what you spent. Oh, I see you spent $300. There's going to be a $50 tax on everything that you spent at Costco. So if you want to come in and use our roads, and you want to use everything, you're going to have to pay me. And so the way that the Romans collected this is they had sort of a <clears throat> franchise... Uh, they knew how much each region thought should bring in, um, and so they sold th- this, these parcels to uh, tax collectors who were sort of local people. Um, so they said, hey, this region should produce $10,000 a year. You pay, you pay me $10,000 uh, for this year, and then you have the rights to all the taxes here. And so the, the tax collectors knew that all they needed to do was to get their $10,000 back and anything above and beyond that they could collect, that was gravy to them. And so these guys were not liked. Um, uh, if Levi in particular was Jewish. And so the Jewish, in the New Testament times, we're talking about Jewish tax collectors. And so these guys would have, their turncoats, they... Uh, they were despised by their people. Um, their, their family would basically kick them out of the family. Um, they wouldn't be welcome in their homes. They would be a shame uh, to their parent, to their mothers, uh, to their fathers, um, to everybody who knew them. And this, in this case, we can see it's a family business that uh, Levi, I think Alpheus, actually owned the region. Um, <clears throat> they were outside of the faith. Um, they were forbidden from synag- going into synagogue. Um, so they were not allowed to worship with the people. Um, if they touched somebody that was of the faith, 
um, they would make them unclean. And so nobody wanted to touch them. Nobody wanted to interact with them. Uh, they were forbidden from testifying in court. Um, you legally didn't have to tell them the truth. And so as you were passing by, you were allowed to lie to them. Uh, the list goes on and on. These, these people were absolutely despised. They had found um, some writings in, in the region of Galilee that around this time that there was some particular tensions between the fishermen and, and the tax collectors because the export of the fish going out, uh, that they were, they were excising too many taxes out of, out of the people. And so the, the fishermen's union did not like what was happening. And so looking at the story, it's like, well, Jesus has called um, two fishermen or four fishermen already, and now he throws in a tax collector. He says, you know, as just to kind of go on, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him, and I can just see the four fishermen going, what is he thinking? Jesus is assembling this pretty sweet dream team of his, of this band of disciples. Um, if it wasn't bad enough with the, the four fishermen, now Levi, the tax collector, he is eventually going to call Simon the Zealot in a few chapters. And so just to put that into perspective, Simon the Zealot would have been like a guy in the tea party that was on steroids. And so now you have a tax collector and the tea party guy who they, there had to have been some significant strain amongst the 12 disciples in following after Christ. Um, Anna pointed out when we got home, she's like, oh, it's really interesting to think that we always think of the gospel of Matthew. It's like the gospel um, that, that presents the greatest testimony f- for the Jewish people, that, that God used Matthew, this man who wasn't allowed to even testify in court, to pin the words that would carry the most amount of authority to the Jewish people. And it just shows you that the account of the Bible um, isn't something that man would put together. It, it, was, it, it, it was done in a way that was real, that there was no phony religion being created, that it, it, as it happened, um, it, it's just overwhelming to think or humbling to think that God would use people um, that seem so unworthy and, and so unthinkable to be used for his mission and his purpose, and yet he does it all the time. Uh, Kent Hughes, a commentator, says this, Christ saw in the flawed life of Levi, the tax collector, or Matthew, the writer and evangelist, he still sees men and women with his consummate artist eye today. The scripture says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. He sees in us what no one else sees. It's it's beautiful. And so here's Jesus walking along the seashore to the one guy that everybody hates and can't stand. He says, listen, I want you to follow me. Um, Matthew gets up and he follows Jesus and God does tremendous things in his life as he abandoned everything to follow after Christ. And now we read in verse 15, and it happened that while he was reclining at the table in his house and many tax collectors and sinners were there dining, 
with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. So there's a, there's a lot here. I, uh, Mark just kind of goes from one scene to the next scene, and it kind of leaves you uh, going, wow. He tells Levi to follow him, and, and now it just happened that he's reclining at a table. So the scene just shifts, like, what, what happened? Um, in Luke chapter 5, verse 29, we learn there that um, the story unfolds a little bit slower. And we're told there that Levi then had a big, a big party, like a dinner party. Uh, it says, and, and Levi gave a big reception for him, that's Jesus, in his house. Um, <clears throat> we don't know if Levi had regular dinner parties. We don't know if this was a special party for Jesus. Um, we do see that Levi had a large house, which tells you that he was a very successful taxman. I mean, that he, he was able to host a party in his home that included a magnitude of people. Um, we see that the people that were invited were tax collectors. They were Levi's peers. So it's a whole room of people that were despised by the population. <clears throat> One commentator said this, it said that Jesus has and will continue to reach inside of the walls of the synagogues, but these people would not be found there because they weren't allowed there. So it's really easy to read the story, and a lot of people say all the time, oh, Jesus didn't hang out with the religious people. No, Jesus hung out with everybody. He always was in the synagogues teaching. He was trying to reach the Pharisees and scribes. He's also trying to reach uh, these tax collectors who are hated, um, we see that there were sinners there, and I think our minds go to like a, uh, I think our minds go in a, a different direction than the text actually implies. Some of your translations could have like a notation kind of explaining the, the difficulty of the word. So it's not sinners like, hey, these guys are all really bad people and they're doing horrible things. The idea is that these are non-religious Jews. They don't observe the law. They don't care about going to synagogue. They're um, you know, they could be quote-unquote good people, but they're just not religious people. And, and so they were outside of the scope of, of people that Jesus would find in the synagogue and the, and the religious hub of, of the community. And it's, it's a beautiful picture of Levi coming to Christ, figuring out who he is, like, Jesus, I have access to all of these other tax collectors. How about I have a party, I have a gathering, we'll have a meal, and, and we, we have them all over, and then you can have the floor, and you can talk about whatever you want to talk about to this, this, this crowd. Um, it, it, it would have been an amazing setting. This, this idea of a meal was, was viewed as um, super intimate. This is kind of the, the tension that the religious guys would have had the problem with is that the Jewish people believed that when you sat down and you shared a meal, that there was something sort of almost mystical that as you broke bread together and then the, the food from the same loaf, the food from the same uh, dish entered into your bodies together and then started the process of digestion and and bringing you energy and life, it was a, it was a way of of, of truly uh, connecting an individual. And and it's I mean it's true you have a, you share a meal with somebody, um, you can get to know people all the time, and then all of a sudden you sit down and you have a meal, and you know you get lettuce in your teeth, and you're kind of like 
trying to slurp up stuff. There, there's just there's an intimacy to it, and I and I do think it's one of the reasons that we try to promote dinner eights and having barbecues. It's a very Christian thing to do to eat with one another because it's a way to to go deeper in relationship with one another. And so we see in this text, it happened that he was reclining to the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners, these non-religious folks, were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And they were told there were, there were many of them, and, and many of these people are changing the course of their life, and they're now exposed, they have access to this Jesus that they've heard so much about. And they're hearing his message, and they're responding Trying not to cough because of the weed whacking. <clears throat> so when I read this story, this this first part, I'm I'm convicted on a couple fronts. I um, I'm convicted that that we as followers of Christ are to be uh, intentional about cultivating and maintaining relationships with the lost world. That that we that we should have genuine relationships with people that don't know Christ, don't love Christ, um, so that we can share Christ with him. I'm, I'm convicted. I'm not by nature one who is, uh, like I'm actually an introvert. And so having people into my house, it's very like straining to me. Like I, it's, it's, it's draining and but I'm married to an extrovert, <laughs> and so um, God has really done a work in my life to grow me in this area. But when I look at the New Testament, when I look at how things unfold, um, it, it, it seems that your home, that our homes, are, are one of the most important places for evangelism to occur, that, that relationships just developing real, slow um, relationships where people are exposed to your mess, they're, they're exposed to your imperfections, they're exposed to all, maybe your great or terrible cooking, <laughs> like, what a, like what, whatever it is where life begins to, to really um, connect and get messy and um, th- that this is important, that, that, that being in the community with others it, it is a profound thing and it's commanded by us to be hospitable throughout the, the New Testament. And so here from the very get-go, we see Levi opening up his home. We see him inviting all the people in. And we see Jesus doing a work uh, through this. But in verse 16, we see those that, <clears throat> the, the religious one. And, 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 w- and the Pharisees, uh, when we hear Pharisees, we automatically today go to like, oh, those are bad guys. The Pharisees were deeply respected. These were the leaders of the community. Um, you had the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes, or not the scribes, you had the, uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were like the Ivy League guys that were in high, high political pa- places <clears throat> that had a lot of money, and they were sort of like the aristocrats that didn't, weren't in touch with the real people. Um, the Pharisees were the blue-collar guys. These, these are the religious leaders. They're extremely conservative um, they shaped the community, they led the community, they were loved by the community, they were deeply esteemed. And so you have the scribes of the Pharisees, so you have the, the kind of like the leaders amongst the, the leaders. Looking at this picture, they're aware of Jesus, he's a young rabbi, 
He'd, he'd been excelling. He'd been doing great things, um, sort of countercultural to them, and so they had some questions. But suddenly now you have this young rabbi sitting in a home of tax collectors, filled with tax collectors and non-religious people who, uh, <clears throat> for anybody else, they would be unclean, and they would be then forbidden from going to the synagogue, forbidden from interacting with other people. And, and I try to initially not get so like, critical of these guys because I really do think that they're, they're trying to honor God, but they're challenged by what Jesus is, is doing. And so now they're looking in at this scene, eating with these non-religious Jews and the tax collectors, and they say to his disciples, so they know who Jesus' disciples are, and they ask the question, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and, and sinners? Like, this is, this is hard for us to understand. And so, <clears throat> trying to see some of my notes, I talked about all this stuff. Like, so we, ha- we have these unclean guys, this rabbi, and the significance of the meal. This is a huge shakeup from how... Uh, rabbis would interact with the community and people and those on on the fringes of society. Um, I think of their criticism and how much criticism that Jesus uh, faced, like as the story unfolds with these guys, condemning Jesus for breaking what was normative for them, uh, doing, you know, I think of how that Jesus was doing church in a way that they were uncomfortable with. I think it's super easy to be critical, um, but it's so much harder to really truly to love and to lead in a way where you get dirty. And so here Jesus is in this environment that as we, I think about as we um, commit to developing and cultivating relationships with those that don't know Christ, like it's a real struggle for me. Like that's halfway why, well, it's, it's probably like 90% of the reason why I continue to to minister and do the chaplaincy with law enforcement because it kind of it really forces me to be in a a non Christian environment and being in a non Christian environment there's like stuff that's said that's like oh the old gunner would think that's really funny and the new gunner is kind of giggling but I don't think it's appropriate but how do I like how, how do I thrust myself into this situation and how do I toe the line? And it's not always, it's not always easy. Um, I think of the criticism that will come and they confront Jesus about it. It's like, man, you like hang out with tax collectors and sinners and you, you drinking and what's going on with you? And in Luke 7, verses 31 through 34, Jesus responds. He says, to, to what then shall I compare the men of this generation? What are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, we have played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. And so he's kind of condemning the religious people here who are judging him. And he says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. He he said, he didn't do all of these things. And you guys looked at him, and you said, he has a demon. And now the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So it's like there's nothing that he can do to make everybody happy. Uh, 
he toes a very like difficult line in an amazing way because clearly he's God. He embodies like he, he is God. He's fully man. He goes to these areas where he's facing criticism, yet he teaches profound lessons that are super convicting. In verse 17, he, after hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've been thinking about this this week. You know, our pediatrician retired, and, and so it's like, okay, we've got to find a new pediatrician. So we found a new pediatrician, but to get set up with a new pediatrician, you have to have a meet and greet kind of thing. You have to actually go to the doctor, but we've all been sick. And it's like, I don't want to go have a meet and greet with the doctor. We're all sick. And I'm going, Bible says, you know, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. So if you're sick, you're sick. Like, maybe you'll get a free checkup or whatever, you know? Like, it's a meet and greet time. And the doctor, like, okay, I can't just let you. Um, but Jesus, like, you know, that, that physicians exist for those that are sick. He takes something that's very common that everybody knows, and then he shifts it to the spiritual. And he said, I didn't come to call the righteous. And so there's, there's sort of a zing here because who are the righteous? The righteous are these scribes and Pharisees, the religious ones who are condemning Jesus for hanging out with the quote-unquote sinners and tax collectors. But I think ultimately what he's doing is he's exposing that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, that even these religious ones, they're extremely sinful. And he says, I did not call, come to call the righteous, but the sinners. So I love that Jesus answered their question. He sees, he hears their question. He then saves the disciples from having to like explain it. Because they're like, oh, that's a good question. He's been doing all kinds of things. We're four fishermen. We're Jewish boys. I don't know why he called this tax collector. And I don't know if Simon... Um, uh, I don't know if the zealot is with them at this point. He's, like, he's been doing all kinds of stuff I don't agree with. I don't, I, don't, I don't know why he's doing what he's doing. All I know is that he's Lord and I'm following after him. And that's kind of how our lives go a lot of time. I don't think it's an either-or situation here. Jesus loves both of these groups. I think we see his love for the scribes and the Pharisees and that he, I think, is truly trying to answer their question so that they can respond and follow after Jesus, understanding that, that all, all are sick, all are filled with sin, all are in desperate need of a Savior. I think of John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and starts asking him questions. And Jesus begins explaining to him, and he's, I almost see Jesus shaking his head. He's like, you're the, one of the religious leaders of Jerusalem and, or of Israel, and you don't understand that God's in the business of, of transforming lives. How have you so missed the boat? And so Jesus' little pithy answer is powerful. I mean, we all, that Jesus think it's not the healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We all, we all know this, this, this response of Christ. And so I'm deeply um, grateful for Jesus' heart. Um, 
you know, the young 22-year-old Navy SEAL that was doing his own thing and getting in all sorts of trouble that couldn't give a rip about God? That Christ had so moved in a friend's life that my friend was still willing to, to hang out with me and to expose his life to my life? For the sake of the gospel, I'm deeply grateful um, for those who know Jesus and are able to go beyond what they're comfortable with, to, to, to place themselves in another person's life so that they might hear the life-changing news that Jesus loves them and that Jesus died for them and that, that Jesus has done everything for them because the perception of what Christianity is is so off by our world. There's so much condemnation on Christianity by a world that doesn't even know what the message of Jesus is. And so I'm deeply, I'm deeply grateful by, um, by Jesus' heart for reaching out to the lost. I'm deeply challenged by his example. I, um, as we sort of wrap up here, I, um, I keep thinking about the high priestly pr- prayer that's referred to in John 17. It's the night in which Jesus is betrayed. And in, in that prayer, verses 15 through 19, I'm not, I'm not going to read them, but G- Jesus prays, and he, he's saying, Father, I, I, I pray for my disciples that I'm, that I'm leaving behind, um, that they're, they're in the world, and that they would be in the world. And he, he's praying that they would be salt and light, but that they wouldn't be uh, conformed to the world, that they wouldn't be led astray by the world, but that they would be in there in the midst of it, as the Father had sent Jesus in, into the world to do the same thing. <clears throat> and so I think the first thing in looking at this passage that I have to bring up is that Jesus never condones sin. He doesn't endorse sin. And, and, and there's been many in the quote-unquote Christian camps that have used this passage to, to justify um, living and leading a life of sin that Jesus does not endorse or support. And they say Jesus is the one who endorses this. It's what Jesus did. Um, we're commanded to be out there with people of salt and light, to, to be there distinct from them. I don't know the actual statistics. I don't know that they have an actual statistic. I think people just kind of make it up. I do know in my own life um, from the point of conversion, when I gave my life to Christ at 22, um, it wasn't that many years to where I was in a total Christian bubble. Like it's really easy to go from a life being surrounded by people, like you're tax collectors and you want to get out of it. And then you get down the road five, ten years and you look around and you're like, I don't even know a single non-Christian. And so I definitely would like to challenge each one of us. Like, do you actually have friends, like, like true friends that don't know Christ, reject Christ, um, that you're burdened for, that, that y- you have a relationship with them, and your, your prayer, your aim is to be a light to them? Um, if we turn, I want to close if, First Corinthians. If you'll go with uh, First Corinthians chapter 5, <clears throat> I think Paul deals with this, this issue <clears throat> or the tension that's found with, um, like, how, how do we go about doing this? How, how do we, 
guard our own lives and yet also thrust ourselves into situations where, where we could be tempted, where we could have trial, like trials and strains and like legitimate temptations. The, the temptation, I think, for us is to say, I'm not going to be a part of the world. I want to create a little commune and hide in my little bubble and just have safe um, Christian people into my little bubble. And I'm just going to judge the outside world and I'm going to be like the Pharisees and I'm, I'm going to be safe that way. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So clearly they'd received this letter. We don't know what this letter is. And, and they did what a lot of us, I think, in the Christian world have a propensity to do. I don't want to associate with any immoral people. And I totally get it. Like I, I, I'm not like judging us as I'm judging myself, but I, I know that when I was early Christian, I didn't want to be there because Gunnar would stumble. And so I pulled myself out to strengthen my relationship with Christ and my walk. And I see this and it says, he says, hey, uh, verse 9, um, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean with the immoral people of this world or with covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. He, didn't, he said, like, hey, I... I put, a, I put a warning there, but, but the warning wasn't to avoid all people because you can't go anywhere. And I know we're so good at like boycotting everything as Christians. I mean, you, I, don't, I don't know what we're boycotting today presently, but um, you, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that are like, they're not living like Christian. They don't have Christian values because guess what? They're not Christian. Like, why would we expect Starbucks to act Christian? Like, I've never seen in their mission statement to, like, go and glorify the world for Christ. I have a feeling their mission statement is, like, we want to make a lot of money by selling coffee and whatever else we can sell. And then they do things that are worldly because they're a worldly business. And so I'm not, if you have convictions here, I'm not trying to, like, now I'm like, oh, I don't want to get any, I don't want to be mad at me because I said that about Starbucks. I, no, no matter where you go, there, it, it's a world that doesn't know Christ. And we, we get really offended when the world that doesn't know Christ isn't acting like they know Christ. So go, I mean, go out, have your Starbucks. Try to be a, a salt in, in a, in a, in a world of mashed potatoes with no salt, you know, like you need, you need to bring some flavor, you need to bring some preservation and, and, and light to a dark world so that maybe somebody that doesn't know Christ would come to know Christ. He, he then continues and he says there is cause for judgment. He says, but I actually wrote to you in verse 11 not to associate with any so-called brother or Christian is if he is an immoral person, covetous, or an idolater or reveler or a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. <clears throat> and so when Paul gives this word, he says, listen, the whole world is, they're, they're not Christian, so don't, you can't avoid it. You'd have to leave the world to get away from it. 
So go out there, maintain your relationships. Uh, don't judge them. They need Christ. Share Christ with them. But then he says, as, a, as an accountability tool, I think, in many ways, that if, if your brother who d- proclaims Christ as Savior is out there and he's becoming like them and he's, at, he's functioning as the world, that there's a reason to judge and to, to, to correct for the sake of bringing them back to the gospel. And it's a, ter- it's a terribly difficult line to find that balance. All I can encourage us to do is to have a heart like Christ, to desire to be out there and to have a burden um, for those that don't know Christ, that you would um, put your life at risk. By risk, I'm not talking about you getting stabbed or shot or something. I'm talking about for you as a Christian to, to, to put yourself in a relationship with somebody that doesn't know Christ and they might not respond the way a Christian responds and it might be, uncomfortable for you. It might put you in how do you laugh or not laugh or how do you maintain your convictions while genuinely being there and loving them. Like I, All I can do is to tell you to follow the Spirit and to really lean on Him and that He would give you wisdom and discernment as you navigate these relationships. All I know is that Christ has called us to be a light in the world and we do this through genuine relationships and, and oftentimes it takes years. Like you... Allow the person to know that you really genuinely love them and then they'll hit a bump in the road and their whole world will fall apart. They'll say, yeah, yeah, I know I teased you for a long time for being a Christian, but I'm really struggling right now. Can you share with me about what this is all about? And so we pray for those opportunities. But when I look at this verse and I see about Jesus, you know, he didn't come to the righteous, he came to the unrighteous, uh, to, to sinners. There, there was that film about the amazing story. We sang Amazing Grace or a, a rendition of it, this song that has so um, transformed the world that this, this, this guy, um, John Newton, who was a slave trader that did horrific things, that he was a vile, vile man. And tradition sort of holds that it was the, um, the, uh, the, the Africans, the, the spiritual songs like that he could hear from the whole of the ship as, as horrible things were happening to him that would sort of, uh, the, the rhythm of, of their singing that sort of pierced through the walls of the ship and kind of went deep into his soul. And they, they say that Amazing Grace like follows the same rhythm as some of these spiritual tunes. And there was um, that movie that came out a few years ago that was amazing. I'm sure there was a book beforehand, but I tend to watch movies and then quote the books, you know, kind of thing. And so the movie, Amazing Grace, we've, we've, we've uh, shown it at church a couple times, but it's about William Wilberforce, who after John Newton became um, a Christian, he then mentored young men. And, and so one of the guys that he mentored was William Wilberforce, who actually went into politics, and he was the guy that basically changed the law in England to, uh, to abolish slave tra- trading. And so there's a scene in the movie, like you see John Newton, kind of he's in a, he's like a monk or something, and he's mopping the floors, and the first time John Newton goes to him, or not John Newton, William Wilberforce goes to him, he says, you have to give me everything you have. And John's like, I can't do it. Like the names and the people and the horrific things that I saw, these these 20,000 ghosts haunt me at night. 
and I can't, I can't. And so Wilberforce leaves, and then later in the movie, the, the, the case and the momentum is, is, is building, and he's about to win, but he needs evidence, and he goes back there, and John Newton at this time is now like blind, and he said, I, I need the evidence. And John like looks at him with tears in his eyes. He's like, my, my brain is failing, my eyes are failing, but I can see clearer now than I've ever been able to see in my whole life. Here are the books, the names, the records, and he, he says all of this stuff. And he, he like encourages him, take everything, and you stop what's happening. And then he says something that's super powerful. He looks at William Wilberforce, and he says, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And that's where we each need to be in our own lives. You might be a Christian for a long time. You might be you know, doing everything right now, and you might be building yourself up um, to making yourself think that you're a good person, that you go to Sunday school, you tuck your shirt in, you don't swear as much anymore. Um, all of us have missed the mark. All of us are in desperate need. Christ came to save. He loved us so much that he lived the perfect life that he went to the cross. He took our place as a substitute. And he received the wrath that was due us. And all we have to do is receive it as a gift. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for the beauty of Christ's example. <clears throat> Jesus spoke existence or spoke creation into existence, that that, um, he's all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing. He didn't have to step into creation, but he did. And so, Lord, I'm grateful for his example of, of placing himself in an environment that was beyond his comfort zone out of great love, that he interacted with the religious ones who were great sinners and needed him, and he hung out with these tax collectors and the non-religious ones who were great sinners. And he did it in a way that, that he embodied love. He embodied servanthood. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, who know you, to follow his example, that we would be convicted um, to invest in others' lives, those that don't know you. If we find our place in in our lives where we have zero Christian, non-Christian friendships, that you would help us to establish somebody that doesn't know you as Savior and that we would love on them and, and genuinely care for them, not, not use them, but that we would get to know them, that we would hear them, that we would invest in them so that we could be used by you uh, as a light. And Father, for those that are hearing this that don't know you as Savior or unsure, maybe they have confusion over what the gospel is, Father, I pray that you would Uh, clarify any misunderstanding that they have so that they would see you as a God who loves them, as a God who created them, 
as a God that stepped into creation uh, to show them who he is. Father, we thank you that Christ went to the cross on our behalf. We thank you that it's not about works to get right with you. It's simply believing and trusting and that as we believe, you send your spirit into our lives and that you begin changing us from the inside out. So, Father, I pray that you would guard us from becoming legalistic, help our relationship with you to be fresh and free in grace, Lord, help us to be a light for you. Again, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.